The ambition is a simple one. It is that you have to be able to write about everything. You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Malinowski. For the celebrated writer and political activist Arundhati Roy, writing is not just about creating vivid images and telling beautiful stories. For me, it's important to be able to write about violence with the same intimacy with which I write about love. It's as important to be able to be utterly vulgar as it is to be exquisite. This way of writing has opened Roy's work and life up to a diverse set of characters. And now, they're not going anywhere. Yeah, first they just sort of used to drop in and, you know, then the visits <laughs> began to last long and then they just shamelessly moved in with me. In this interview from 2018, Roy talked to the Danish writer Merete Prus Hille about resisting becoming a novel writing factory and instead traveling India for 20 years, trying to grasp the diversity of her country. Basically, after I wrote The God of Small Things, uh, I was never you know, going to be that writer who s- sort of wrote a book, became famous, and then turned into a kind of novel writing factory, you know, that had to produce uh, a book every two years or something. I instead uh, spent 20 years traveling and writing and arguing and uh, deepening my own roots and understanding in India, which 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 is a universe of its own. It lives in several centuries simultaneously. And I became somebody who... Uh, you know, uh, who had all these layers building up in me. And I uh, I thought, w- w- when I wrote The God of Small Things, I, I did have a tremendous sense of relief because I finally found a language in which to be able to express myself. And that language wasn't just English. Actually, it was two languages. You know, it was English and Malayalam together, the language that I grew up speaking. But when my universe became very much more complicated, the people in the ministry, basically, they, it was almost like they just started visiting me. You know, mm. they'd come and drop in, and then after a while, this whole gang just moved into my house <laughs> and wouldn't go away, you know. And I needed another language. And I almost felt like... I had to take the language of the God of small things and throw it down from a very tall building and smash it and pick up the pieces and that became the ministry. Because the ministry is a book in which I wanted to challenge what a novel can and should do. It was not enough for me to say, okay, a novel is, is a story in which you have a few characters and then you follow them and maybe through them you tell, you have a political background. For me, it was like, can a novel be a city? Mm. You know, can a novel just be as complicated as one of the cities, like the city I grew up in, you know? Can it have lanes and by lanes and can you just 
not look at a crowd and see a crowd, but stop and talk to the smallest person, smoke a cigarette with them, ask them where they came from, complicate things for the reader. Because it's not, I, I, I feel like writers are somehow being made into products, you know, where everything is easy and you have this very beautifully integ integrated product, it fits on a shelf somewhere, you know the story, you know the subject and so on. But this was to me to challenge how you tell a story. Can the background become the foreground? Can a really minor person suddenly become important? Can you make a reader deal with the kind of crowd that you have to deal with every day you step out onto the road, you know, even if it frightens them? Can you make them trust you enough to say, okay, I'll get lost in this city, but I'm sure I'll find my way back? <laughs> yeah, and you also, you're an architect because I think it's also yeah. somehow constructed like a house or maybe. Uh, a whole city, as you say. Uh, how, how does your work as an architect influence the way you write? I, I think it influences uh, the way I write tremendously, you know, because mm. to me, um, it's like uh, when I was studying architecture already, by the time I was in my fourth and fifth year, I became very interested in, in cities and how they come to be what they are. Perhaps not a city like Copenhagen, but a city <laughs> like Delhi, which is, uh, you know, it's got this uh, ancient part, and then it's got this un... I mean, this wild development, it breaks open, 1857, the, you know, after the mutiny, the British smash it, then it, then it forms itself. It's planned and it's unplanned and it's modern and it's ancient, it's wild, it's poor, it's rich. And always it has a form. All cities in the world sort of have a form that inscribe themselves against the contours of nature. And so can you trust a novel to do that? Mm. Can, you, can you let it go and reel it back and let it go? And can it not be just entirely confected to be this, this thing where, uh, you know, so how, how can you balance those things and structure it? Because the structure of a novel, to me, is as important as the language and as important as the story, how the story reveals itself. So uh, the chaos of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is planned, mm. you know? Yeah. There's also many borders in the book, like Andrew, one of the main characters, live in a graveyard, like the border between uh, life and death, and is also herself a hermaphrodite, like the gender border, and there's a border of Kashmir. So uh, is the border like a, an important issue for you in the book? Well, India, you know, uh, in, uh, India is a country which... Uh, the Western world looks at and thinks, oh, this is an anarchic place. Oh, it's, you know, Bollywood and craziness and you don't know what's going on. Actually, the anarchy is only in the traffic. The society, <laughs> itself, society itself lives in, a, in an iron grid of caste, of ethnicity, of uh, religious... Um, you know, any little move is a transgression that is met with death, even mm -hmm. today, you know. 
uh, maybe except amongst the very elite. So um, it wasn't that I set out to, to write a book in which, uh, to me, a novel is something too beautiful to have a project or an issue. I mean, if I had, I would, if I had to challenge uh, borders or write about caste, I've done it in nonfiction. So for me, fiction is something too beautiful to be uh, utilitarian. But perhaps because I myself am someone through whom borders run, you know, because I, my mother was married outside of her community and whatever. So <laughs> I find that when I'm writing, I'm very inarticulate about what I'm writing. It's only afterwards I learn to talk about it and to think about it, you know. And I realized then that all the characters in the ministry have these incendiary borders running through them. Not always what you think. Mm. Like you mentioned Anjum, she's actually born as Aftab in uh, the old city of Delhi in the early 50s. And yes, she has the border of gender running through her, but today the more dangerous identity that she has is that she's a Muslim mm. in a place where Muslims are being slaughtered, ghettoized, killed. So Anjum, she actually uh, finds herself in a state, uh, the western state of Gujarat in 2002, where there was a massacre of Muslims that took place where people were being literally slaughtered on the streets. And she escapes because she's a hijra, which is what people call the Urdu name for uh, trans people mm. of all kinds. And she escapes because they, the murderers feel that to kill her will bring them bad luck. So she thinks of herself as butcher's luck, you know. And when she comes back to her home in o Old Delhi, she finds it hard to continue living her old, old life, haunted by the memories of what happened to the people there. And eventually she moves into the graveyard, just outside the walls of the old city. And for a long time lives there almost like a dead person. But then she slowly begins to recover. And she begins to initially build a home. And then she builds a guest house in the graveyard. It's called the Jannat guest house. Jannat in Urdu means paradise. And uh, it's a guest house run in a graveyard, which becomes a sort of shelter for people. And Again, you know, a lot of people in the West sometimes think now this is magic realism, but it's not because remember that in, in India, the majority community are Hindu, they do not bury their dead, they cremate the dead. So graveyards are essentially Muslim and now they are becoming ghettos because Muslims are being pushed out of the mainstream economically and it's not just the killing. It's like they're not represented anymore. And so the graveyards are places where the poor do uh, accumulate, you know. And then there is, of course, the other graveyard, which is in Kashmir, mm. which is actually called Paradise. Jannat, Kashmir is often referred to as Jannat because it's such a beautiful place. And so 
in Delhi, you have a graveyard with the Jannat guest house, and in Kashmir, you have a Jannat that is now covered with graveyards because it, it has been occupied by the Indian army since the 1990s, mm. the most densely militarized zone in the world. As it says in the novel, that the gravestones grow out like young children's teeth. Yeah, and I think also there's a lot of violence in the book, but it's not described. It's like the violence is usually taking place outside of the narrative, outside of the story. Uh, but it still works on us as readers. We see the violence very clearly, even though it's on second hand or seen through a certain angle. Uh, do you think that this, how, how have you been thinking about describing violence in the book? Well, I, I just feel that, you know, for me as a writer, the ambition is a simple one. It is that you have to be able to write about everything, you mm. know, and you have to be able to, to, uh, to um, y you know, I don't want to write a beautiful book which is just got, which, which is just pitched at a very, let's say, a beautiful note, you know. But for me, it's important to be able to write about violence with the same intimacy with which I write about love. It's as important to be able to be utterly vulgar as it is to be exquisite, you know. Um, and somehow that is how I experience life on the streets, mm. you know. So often it's uh, when I've been working with the translations, you know, because uh, I was just talking to my translator about the fact that I, uh, I mean, for me, in a way, living in a country which, where there are 780 languages and 22 official languages and 38 waiting to be made official, <laughs> And all of us sort of swim around in, 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 in a sea of languages. And so I write, I write uh, imagining many languages, you know. But say when you're translating this into Urdu, part of it is like going back home. Mm. And yet the idiom or the literary idiom of Urdu as opposed to the spoken Urdu that you encounter on the streets are totally different, mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, sometimes that violence or that vulgarity isn't there in the literary idiom, although it's there on the street. Yeah. So, how do you write about it and how do you translate it and how do you think about it? It's, it's, it's complex, but I think um, it's, you know, Sometimes, obviously, it's more effective when you're not just writing something straight, but you're seeing it through a prism of something else, you know? Yeah. yeah. You, you made a film about the dam that you have been uh, working against, the construction of the big dam in Amada in, in, in India. And in that film, you say that when you were a child, you were sitting on a boat on the river and looking down, waiting for the fish, and that experience is what made you a writer. And I'm curious to know, how, how do you think about that? How is, is it waiting for the fish from the depth to come uh, to mind, to life in, in your mind, in your books? Well, 
you know, I grew up obviously in the little village called Aymanam, which is the mm. setting of the god of small things. And uh, <clears throat> again, partly because, you know, my, my parents were divorced and I was very young, I was two or three, and to come back to that very traditional society where my mother was, it was really made very clear to her that she wasn't welcome there, and even more clear to us as very little children, my brother and me, that we were not welcome. And so in this strange limbo, I, we used to spend a lot of time on the river. And I suppose for children that young, to have that many hours of silence, unsupervised mm. patience, you know, uh, probably has something to do with it. But I remember a very funny incident too, where one day when I went to the river, I must have been five or six, and uh, the, the woman who was my grandmother's older sister, who's actually baby Kochama in the God of Small Things, not a very pleasant character. <laughs> so she came with me to the river, and she was making a nuisance of herself, you know, like making noise and talking to me, and it wasn't very good for fishing. <laughs> and then I came back and um, I wrote a story, and it was called uh, Fishing with My Ancestors. Because I thought that ancestors were just your older relatives, <laughs> you know, and she got so angry with me. She's like, ancestors are dead people, <laughs> you know, you cannot call me an ancestor. But yeah. so it was, I'm sure, very much part of, you know, one's thinking. Yeah, yeah. But about motherhood also, there's something about motherhood in the book. It's like it's taking away from the biological motherhood, uh, the both uh, Andrew and Tylo, Tilo, Tylo, uh, find children that they take to them and becomes mothers for. And this becoming motherhood is very important. Andrew feels that her shattered body suddenly becomes whole, or her shattered self becomes whole. But, but in a motherhood, that's not biological. I find that very interesting because it's many places in the book this takes place. Yeah, I think, I mean, the book is full of uh, babies mm. and it's uh, Tilotama, the, the two main ca women characters, Tilotama, Tilo and Anjum. Uh, I've already introduced you to Anjum and Tilotama in some ways she's, she's a completely different character. She's, she's a, Anjum is a raucous, generous, sheltering person and Tilotama is a pretty steely, quiet character. I mean, she's designed as a, as, a, as a person who lives inside the country of her own skin. Mm. And it's a country that issues no visas and mm. has no consulates. And she can be a biological mother, but doesn't want to be mm. one. And yet, it's not out of a lack of love, you know? Yeah. But it's just a strangeness. I mean, she's, she's got the edginess of her, you know, a person who... Uh, in fact, someone asks her, you know, like, why she doesn't get married, and she says she wants to be free to die <laughs> alone and without explanation, you know? So yeah. she's a very uh, unnerving character in many ways. And yet, both she and Anjum are women who 
are not obviously in any sense uh, slogan banner carrying feminists but they are so themselves that they are so obstinately not even obstinately they just are themselves and so they are like water on rock you know eventually the rock has to wear down for them mm. and they and so the through them the book has very many ways in which you look at love or motherhood or friendship in a way uh, the way i think of the connection between the ministry and the god of small things is that the god of small things is a book about a family which has a broken heart at its center and the ministry is 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 a book about people who start off with shattered hearts and they bring those shards together to the graveyard and make a mended heart you know yeah yeah so it's a very positive also among the violence it's a yeah. very positive book uh, but also there's this thing about the gender uh, how many genders do you believe there is in the world i think gender is a spectrum and all of us are somewhere on it mm. you know because i think if you start counting you'll always be leaving someone out you know yeah, yeah. So and so in in the case of uh, you know Anjum yeah and uh, this is true in uh, India that uh, there has always been a space for for the hijras you know it's a marginalized space but it's a space so it's a very organized community and Anjum when she turns 16 she moves from the house of her parents in the old city of Delhi into a home close by and it's called the khwabga in urdu khwabga means the house of dreams where she lives uh, in a community of people who are have an infinite number of genders you know there are men who just dress as women there are people who have had surgery there are all kinds of uh, different kinds of people and uh, there are hindus and muslims and christians each with different ideas from their own religions of how and they live together and they refer to the outside world as the dunya which means the world you know and uh, they somehow see themselves as somehow outside of the dunya yeah yeah um the critic and um writer John Berger uh, had had an influence on your writing will you tell about that how or this book how it started <laughs> oh well uh, he John Berger was a very uh, for me a very beloved writer and friend and uh, when i was with him in his village one day he just said okay now open your computer and read me what you're writing which is not something that anybody could easily say to me you know and then i i said okay and i started reading uh, from the book i had already started writing this was many many years ago and he, he and i already knew that it was going to be called the ministry of utmost happiness so he used to call me utmost <laughs> and he said i want you to promise me that you'll you go back to india and you will not do anything else but write this book it's mm. it's the most important thing you can do 
So I said, I promise. And I went back to India, and uh, within two weeks of my being back, a note was slipped under my door, and it was from the guerrillas in the forest fighting a battle against these huge mining companies, asking me to come, you know, which is not something that they do to anybody. So I instantly broke my promise to John, <laughs> and I went into to the forest, and I, I lived there with them for a few weeks, and I came out and wrote a, a, a big little booklet, actually, called Walking with the Comrades. But mm. it turns out there's a very important character who I met. I mean, not literally, but I'm saying, you know, one of the characters that came to meet me, who is in the book, mm. uh, is from there. You yeah. know? So maybe I was writing the book yeah, yeah. in the way I promised him I would. Yeah. But I was just taking a circuitous route to it. Yeah. But you say your characters, they, like, they arrived at your house in your mind and start living there? Yeah, first they just sort of used to drop in and you know, then yeah. the visits <laughs> began to last long and then they just shamelessly moved in with me. People think I live alone, but they can't they see the crowd, you know? <laughs> and the minute, and for many years when I was writing, if anyone came to see me, the only thing that would go on in my head was, be normal. <laughs> like, just, just, you know, like, just don't act as if you're, you know, needing to be institutionalized. So... Uh, and the minute they would leave, all these characters would immediately begin to discuss them. Mm. You know, who had come, what they were <laughs> like. So that's why I keep saying, people, when, especially last year when the book came out, and everybody, obviously, you don't have to go through that one year where everybody has an opinion about it. I think, yeah, but, you know, they have an opinion about you too. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I think they also had an opinion on your publishers. They had they had an opinion on my publisher. Yeah, yeah. They had a. I had a. Um, basically, I'm a incurable loyalist. You know, so all the publishers who published the God of Small Things obviously got this. But in Germany, my publisher uh, had died, so I didn't have a publisher. Mm. So my agent or, you know, whatever, I had to go to Germany and there was this, a day in which I had to meet a number of publishers who had already written letters to me saying what they thought of the book and all that and they'd already made whatever offers mm. they had to make. And I wanted to meet them and then I was supposed to decide. So I, I uh, so my agent said, well, you know, decide. So I said, we'll have to talk to some <laughs> folks. <laughs> so he says, you talk to me, sunshine. You know, I'm your agent. I said, no, no, I, I need to talk with Anjum and Tilo and all of them and ask them. And then I said, uh, well, they want Hans Jürgen. So <laughs> these agents, the blood drained from their face because they said, but you know, his offer is like half of everyone else's. <laughs> so how is that possible? I said, yeah. that's what it's going to be, because they like him, you know. So, 
<laughs> yeah. Anyway, so then eventually they went and told him that, well, look, I don't know what's wrong with her, but this is the thing. <laughs> and then he said, oh, we'll double it. So I said, <laughs> so I had it both ways. You know? <laughs> but how does it work when you write, actually? I mean, you say they are in your house. You hear them, you talk to them, but from there to the writing, what is the process? How, how does it? How is your day, your writing day, when you do sit down and write? Or I guess you sit down. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I mean, you you're a writer, and you know how obsessive it is, right? I mean, you're writing all the time. You're walking, you're writing, you're buying vegetables, you're writing, you're burning the food on the mm. stove, you're writing. So, um, people sometimes think that it's arrogance when I say that I don't make a whole lot of drafts. But it's just that the drafting goes on in my head, mm. you know. So, when I actually write, it's not, it's not that I generate volumes and then edit it. And it's... Everything does have a place and I, I know why it has that place, you know. Every word, every sentence, every chapter, whatever, it does. But um, eventually, I think the fundamental art is to concentrate, mm. right? And then somehow it appears on the page. But to concentrate, to be able to be open, to allowing the characters to speak without getting in the way. Mm. You know? Yeah, you have also said that writing to you is the closest you come to prayer. Yes, yeah. writing a novel to Is that the, the openness to let something come and... No, and also the, the thing is that to me, if anyone was to say, what, what do you feel most grateful for in your life? I would say that I feel most grateful for having been able to... on two occasions at least, lavish all my concentration and my love and my skills and on something that I was able to mold into what I wanted it to be, mm. which is separate from what other people think about it, but it's what I wanted it to be, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, there's something I, I, I didn't understand first in the book, but which I then later understood was really important. It's, it's the people who uh, transport cattle, dead cattle, but then are, are stopped. I, I wonder if you will explain that whole... Uh, this, this, uh, yeah, why is it so important about the cattle and the dead cattle in the book? Well, basically, it's about uh, caste, you know, and so the... The, the upper caste Hindus believe that even the farmers, even people who are farmers, they believe that once a cow has died, um, it becomes polluted. And so mm. that's why the Hindu caste system has the outcasts, who are now called Dalits, who transport the dead cow, and then they are the skinners who skin it and make leather goods and so on. But also, Muslims who are cattle growers who also eat beef and so on. So in the book, and in India today, almost every day you're reading about the, the, you know, the Hindu right, which is now in power in a big way. They lynch people, they beat people to death mm. 
accusing them of either eating beef or having killed cows, you know. And it's a, it's a manifestation of the rise of the Hindu right. And in fact, when I leave here, I'm going to be doing the Sebal lecture, and I'm talking about the fact that this thing of lynching people and killing people, it's called Gauraksha, which means cow protection. And it began in post-1857, at the turn of the um, century, mm. when uh, the Hindu community, which all of you and all of us think of as an ancient religion, actually Hindu was the word that the Muslims and the British used to describe people who lived east of the Indus. Mm. Hindus never call themselves Hindus. They only call themselves by their caste name. I'm a Brahmin, I'm a Jat, I'm a Gujar, I'm a Baniya, you know. And Hindu is actually a political constituency. And when that constituency began to form itself post the mutiny of 1857, when the last Mughal king was, emperor was deposed and suddenly there was a vacuum and there was a jostling for favor with the British administration. And this constituency now began to form itself and petition the British for representation. And that is when the Hindu community formed itself and it needed some cultural markers to mark itself off from other constituencies. And one of the cultural markers was the cow protection, mm. you know? So it began actually I mean, the, the, the cow vigilantes of today have a history that goes back 150 years, which is why I keep saying what's going on in India is not Donald Trump. You know, it's something that has a long history. It's been coming a long time. It's mm. not a cartoon show, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but you, and you also have some challenges sometimes when you do reading. This is a very nice audience, yes. but maybe you will tell this audience how it sometimes is for you when you do readings or talks. Well, in, you know, I mean, especially because, of, uh, especially because of my position on these things and the things that I say about Kashmir, uh, there are vigilante groups who have sort of taken an oath that I, no meeting of mine can ever go uninterrupted, you know. So they often chant uh, Arundhati Roy Gaddar hai, Pakistan ka yaar hai, which means, you know, Arundhati Roy is a traitor and she's not this person who's like supporting the army and, and she's a friend of Pakistan and so on. So, uh, so yeah, there have been occasions when, when I'm speaking in a place like this and suddenly they come and smash up the stage and smash everything and start, you know, raising slogans against me. And so normally when I'm speaking, I have <laughs> eyes <laughs> behind my head too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you have chosen not to have protection. Look, you can't have protection, you know. I mean, the protection has to be political. The, mm. And I, I'm not alone. I mean, there are many people. I'm not a heroine. I'm not longing to be a martyr. I'm not wanting to capitalize on the fact that, oh, you know, I'm such a threatened person. Because many of us are threatened and we can continue to do what we do. We do it 
strategically, we do it carefully. But I don't want to make capital out of this, oh, you know, I'm such a superstar. It's not like that. And, and see, if these people want to get to you, they'll get to you, you mm. know. So, it's, and I'm not, I, I, I don't think that um, security it just attracts attention. And it's not, I mean, see, it's a very dangerous place. And a lot of people are and have been killed, shot, assassinated. But often there are people who are going after a particular industrialist or exposing a particular corruption scandal or talking about a particular caste for whatever yeah. reason. Whereas I'm, that's not, that's not what I do, you know. I'm telling a story without, it's, it's not journalistic or it's not an expose of anyone or an individual, it's different. Yeah, yeah, I think you However, are... people are, you know, mm. writers are threatened, novelists are threatened, all of that does happen. Yeah, yeah, but I think you have given us a lot of knowledge about modern India in, in this book. It's, it's a wonderful story, but it's also enlightening to know what's going on. And I wonder if you should end this talk by reading a, a, small a chapter bit. from sure. it. So I'm going to read from chapter three. It's called The Nativity. And it's really the part, I mean, this whole novel I started thinking about because I was actually in this place and this little baby did appear. So uh, it was the sort of spark that set off this ministry of utmost happiness. It was peacetime, or so they said. All morning, a hot wind had whipped through the city streets, driving sheets of grit soda bottle caps and beady stubs before it, smacking them into car windscreens and cyclists' eyes. When the wind died, the sun, already high in the sky, burned through the haze, and once again the heat rose and shimmered on the streets like a belly dancer. People waited for the thunder shower that always followed a dust storm, but it never came. Fire raged, through a swathe of huts huddled together on the river bank, gutting more than 2,000 in an instant. Still the Amaltas bloomed, a brilliant, defiant yellow. Each blazing summer it reached up and whispered to the hot brown sky, fuck you. She appeared quite suddenly a little after midnight. No angels sang, no wise men brought gifts. But a million stars rose in the east to herald her arrival. One moment she wasn't there, and the next, there she was on the concrete pavement in a crib of litter, silver cigarette foil, a few plastic bags, and empty packets of uncle chips. She lay in a pool of light under a column of swarming, neon-lit mosquitoes, naked. Her skin was blue-black, sleek as a baby seals. She was wide awake, but perfectly quiet, unusual for someone so tiny. Perhaps in those first short months of her life, she had already learned that tears, her tears at least, were futile. A thin white horse tethered to the railing, a small dog with mange, a concrete-colored garden lizard, 
two palm-striped squirrels who should have been asleep, and from her hidden perch, a she-spider with a swollen egg sac watched over her. Other than that, she seemed to be utterly alone. Around her, the city sprawled for miles. Thousand-year-old sorceress, dozing but not asleep, even at this hour. Gray flyovers snaked out of her Medusa skull, tangling and untangling under the yellow sodium haze. Sleeping bodies of homeless people lined their high, narrow pavements, head to toe, head to toe, head to toe, looping into the distance. Old secrets were folded into the furrows of her loose parchment skin. Each wrinkle was a street, each street a carnival, each arthritic joint a crumbling amphitheater where stories of love and madness, stupidity, delight, and unspeakable cruelty had been played out for centuries. But this was to be the dawn of her resurrection. Her new masters wanted to hide her knobby varicose veins under imported fishnet stockings, cram her withered tits into saucy padded bras, and jam her aching feet into pointed high-heeled shoes. They wanted her to swing her stiff old hips and reroute the edges of her grimace upwards into a frozen, empty smile. It was the summer grandma became a whore. She was supposed to become the super capital of the world's favorite new superpower. India, India, the chant had gone up on TV shows, on music videos, in foreign newspapers and magazines, at business conferences and weapons fairs, at economic conclaves and environmental summits, at book festivals and beauty contests. India, India, India. Thank you. Arundhati Roy visited Louisiana Literature Festival in 2018, where she was interviewed by Marie de Pouls Helle. The interview was edited by Klaus Elmer and produced by Christian Lund. The Louisiana Literature Podcast is produced by Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening.